The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So uh, I'd like to start by offering my greetings to everyone today. Um, I'd like to also express my gratitude for having been invited here to speak to everyone this morning. Um, I'm very new at giving Dhamma talks. I've only given a few of them before. So I'm uh, very grateful for having this opportunity to come here and share some of my experiences and some of the things I've learned over the years with everyone here this morning. Uh, so my name is Ajahn Nando. I'm a Canadian monk and I was ordained at Wat Pa Nanachat or the International Forest Monastery in Northeast Thailand. And uh, I've spent almost my entire monastic life living in Thailand. The, the only other place I've lived for any length of time was actually here in Australia. Um, I've come and lived here a couple times and spent a total of about a year and a half in Australia. So this trip to Australia, I've only been here for a few weeks so far. Um, my friend Prakru Sangarak, or Ajahn War Damo, um, the abbot of Bodhisattva Forest Monastery uh, in Sydney, invited me to come <clears throat> to come to Australia. So this year is his monastery's 10-year anniversary, and he invited me to come help out with the the celebration for it and the ceremony. So instead of doing their normal ceremony, this year they decided to do something special and have a temporary ordination. So they temporarily ordained uh, some novices and some nuns. In the end, it turned out there was three novices and 12 nuns. And because uh, um, during my stay at Wat Panana Chat, I had a lot of experience with teaching and training Nupa cows and novices. Uh, Ajahn Waradamo invited me to help teach and train the, the novices and the nuns. <laughs> so uh, um, the whole trip was very last minute. Um, it was just, uh, it was a big rush getting my visa done, um, getting the tickets, everything, and coming to Australia. And um, when Ajahn Satoro found out I was coming, he invited me to come and visit Melbourne and to come and give a talk here. And so uh, since I'm very new to giving Dhamma talks and don't have much experience and was never very good at uh, public speaking, I, I was planning on preparing a talk today. Normally, normally in the forest tradition, uh, the tradition is that you just give a spontaneous talk. You don't prepare beforehand. But I, I, I thought I'd prepare something today. And, and, uh, but then everything got so busy that I didn't have a chance to prepare anything at all. <laughs> so um, so I, I'm, I'm forced to keep with the tradition. <laughs> so, um, so I thought uh, today maybe I'd just speak a bit about meditation. And so um, uh, in the beginning, when we first start trying to develop our meditation practice, um, kind of the first thing where we start with is just picking a meditation object. So, um, you know, in the Fasuni Maga, we have 40 meditation objects, and we, we have to pick one that suits us best. Usually, for most people, it's um, Anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing, um, this is considered the universal meditation object. And um, uh, I stayed for many years with uh, Lumpur Biak in, uh, in Thailand. And Lumpur Biak says that if you can get samadhi through using breath meditation, through anapanasati, he said it's very easy to develop samadhi in other meditation objects as well. So basically the gains you get from that can be transferred very easily over to other meditation objects. Um, but when we're developing one, uh, we don't usually just develop one meditation object. We usually have one, like our main meditation object, but then we develop uh, usually a couple other meditation objects to help support our main one. So um, in the Buddha taught the four protective meditations. So there's um, Buddha Anusati, reflection on the uh, recollection of the Buddha, uh, Maranusati, recollection of death, Asuba, uh, which is um, meditation on the unbeautiful, 
and then uh, metta, loving kindness meditation. So usually people will uh, work at developing a couple of these to help support their main meditation object. So, um, uh, but your main meditation object doesn't have to just be anapanasati. So some people will um, pick one that really suits their character. Um, so especially people who say their character leans more towards aversion, uh, anger, irritability. A lot of times they'll focus a lot more on developing um, metta or loving kindness meditation. But um, so when we're developing meditation, um, you know, we, we read the texts, you know, we read the suttas and we, we, uh, we read the biographies of some of the great um, meditation masters of the modern period. And it sounds really easy. You know, it sounds like, you know, in the time of the Buddha, some people just, uh, they just heard a sutta. They just heard a teaching from the Buddha and they became enlightened. And, uh, but, but it doesn't always work that way for people. And for most people, it doesn't develop in that way. And so um, when I was staying with Lumpur Biak, one of the things he'd say is, um, you know, he'd say, yeah, in the time of the Buddha, you know, you had uh, Kondanya and he heard the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta and he was able to attain Sotapanna just from listening to it. And he's like, the monks in this monastery, they've heard this, this sutta hundreds of times. They've chanted it hundreds of times, and not one of them attains sotapanna. So we, so we have to put, more, put this effort into our practice. And, um, so, and just be aware that practice doesn't always develop smoothly. It always, doesn't always go the way that we are hoping it to go. So in the course of developing our meditation, we're going to have a lot of um, obstacles that we run into and we have to learn to overcome. So um, one of them uh, is just pain, painful feelings in the body. Um, and this is, this is a normal part of meditation. And uh, especially once you start sitting longer, you'll get pain coming up. But first in dealing with pain is you have to know uh, what kind of pain it is. Is this just pain from sitting too long or is this pain um, because I'm damaging my body. So a lot of times if the pain is in the joints, in the knees, this is pain from damaging our bodies and we need to change our postures. It's, it's very similar to like being an athlete. You know, when athletes are training, there's gonna be a lot of pain. You know, they, they're exerting themselves and, but, and they have to, you know, work through certain types of pain, but they also have to know what type of pain not to work through, what type of pain is going to cause an injury. So we're, we're very similar in that when meditating. So if painful feelings are coming up and they're just the result of from sitting too long, there are different methods we can use and to try to overcome this pain or, or learn from this pain. So <clears throat> again, when Lumpur Biak was uh, teaching this and teaching about doing long sits and dealing about pain during our sitting, he said there was three main uh, ways to deal, deal with pain. And he was saying the first way to deal with pain is just simply by using our samadhi, using our concentration, our meditation. So he was saying when, oh, excuse me, he was saying when the painful feeling arises, you take your samadhi, you take your concentration, and you put it at the spot where the pain is, and the pain will go away. But he said, but what happens with that? is if the pain becomes more powerful than our meditation, what's gonna happen is our samadhi is gonna fall apart and then all the pain is gonna come in all at once and and we didn't really gain much. <laughs> um, but um, so the second method is um, a method which was taught a lot by Lungta Mahabua, one of the uh, uh, modern uh, meditation masters in Thailand. A lot of people consider him to be one of the last of the really legendary forest monks. And the way he taught to deal with pain was to contemplate it and to use our wisdom. So when the painful feeling arises, um, what we want to do is we want to uh, contemplate and separate the pain from the body and then the mind from the pain. So we, we start this, we can look at our body and see um, uh, the body has a physical form it has a color, um, and then we look at the pain, and the, what does the pain look like? 
where's the pain? Um, and you'll see that, and you just start uh, contemplating and analyzing like this, and you'll be able to see that the pain and the body are two separate things. They're not the same. And then you start doing the same with the mind and the pain, and then you separate them out, and then you're going to start developing wisdom from this. But the third method, and this is the one that uh, Lumpur Biak would teach me to do, um, and the one he really recommends, is just to watch the pain. So not to do anything, not to get rid of it, just sit and watch the pain. And you'll see the pain arises, it stays for a while, and then it passes away. And and he calls this like, come way to not, to like pass beyond uh, feelings, pass beyond painful feelings. And uh, and he says that if you can um, truly over uh, do this one time, if you really properly do this once, and really um, over uh, pass beyond pain just one time, he said, you're no longer afraid of pain anymore because you're going to understand the nature of it. It arises and it passes away. But it's not easy and it's not fun. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so these are, these are some of the methods for dealing with um, painful feelings when they arise during meditation. But uh, another one of the problems that um, most meditators will encounter while they're meditating is uh, sloth and torpor or sleepiness while they're meditating. And this is a really difficult one to overcome. And uh, I've talked to monks before who have uh, developed the habit of falling asleep when they meditate. When they're sitting, they fall asleep. And they say it's one of supposed to be one of the hardest uh, things to fix is to to stop falling asleep when they meditate. So um, uh, there are a lot of like kind of little methods and little tricks we learn over time to, to try to overcome this sleepiness. So one of them that uh, Lumpur Biak would teach us was um, when, you, when, you're meditating, uh, when you're meditating and you start getting tired and you start falling asleep, what's going to happen is your body starts hunching forward and getting more relaxed. And the more relaxed your body gets, the sleepier you're going to get. So he teaches us to sit up straight and open up our eyes. And if we're still really sleepy, to, to stare at a light. And he tells the story about when he was a junior monk living with Lumpur Cha. And Lumpur Cha said to him one day, was like, oh, what do you think is more peaceful, meditating with your eyes opened or meditating with your eyes closed? To which Lumpur Biak said, oh, well, med meditating with your eyes closed is much more peaceful. And Lumpur Cha said, no, that's not correct. He said, peacefulness doesn't arise in the eyes. Peacefulness arises in the mind. So it's, uh, it's completely fine to meditate with your eyes open. Um, another method that is used a lot in the Thai, Thailand, in the Thai forest tradition, is to meditate with something on your head. So usually the, what's usually used is a mat, matchbox, so you, because it's lightweight and it makes a bit of sound when it falls. So um, what monks will do is when they meditate, they'll put a matchbox on their head. And so when they start nodding and start falling asleep, the matchbox falls off, makes enough noise to wake you up, and you put it back on and you start again. There's even a, a monastery, Wat Pa Khor Jern Dam, in Amper Nam Yung. And they, uh, it's required there every time they meditate for morning meditation, evening meditation. All the monks there have to have a matchbox on their head. And so, um, uh, and, and they, they even have a, a strict rule about it. Um, during morning meeting and the morning sit, if the matchbox falls once, that's okay. If your matchbox falls twice, that's okay. But when it falls the third time, um, you can only eat sticky rice and one bag of curry you get from your bindabat. So it's uh, a way to try, to try to encourage ourselves to stay awake. And, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so, so over time, we're going to start developing more and more of these, these little skills and these little tools for how to overcome sleepiness. Um, one of the ones also the Buddha recommended is just to rub your limbs. So you're getting tired and you just, you can just rub your legs, rub your arms. Um, it's good to do that if there's not too many, um, it's not good to do that if there's a lot of people around, might start distracting people around you. Um, you can always uh, also get up and do walking meditation. Um, I've lived at places before where there was the, the three nod rule 
if you nod three times while you're sitting, you have to get up and walk. And so, because again, we, we don't want to fall into the habit of falling asleep. Um, uh, I was living at a monastery once and one of the laymen was asking one of the adjuncts who lived there, well, which is better if I'm sitting meditation and um, I'm really proliferating, like I can't stop thinking, or if I'm sitting meditation and I just fell asleep and I'm just sitting and sleeping. And this this, uh, this Ajahn was saying, well, actually, it's better if you're if you're actually thinking than if you're sleeping, because he said if you're thinking, you're still able to fight and you're still able to work with it and work with your meditation. But he said if you've fallen asleep, you're done. You've already lost, you know. And so, um, uh, so we've got to uh, find these skillful means. And then once we've learned and developed some of these over time, we've got to remember to use them. Because a lot of times what happens is we learn all these ways to deal with different hindrances to our practice. But then when the time comes and the hindrance comes up, we, we forget to use them. And um, uh, one of the other big problems which comes up for meditators is over time, a lot of times people can get discouraged and want to give up. You know, they don't feel they're getting the results they want to get. Uh, again, you know, we've read all these texts and we've read the suttas and the biographies of Kruba Ajans, and it seems like the path of practice should be so quick, so straightforward. But in reality, it just, it's not like that for most of us. Um, I stayed for a while with uh, Lumpur Mahamon, and he was one of the most senior disciples of Lumpur Cha. And before he went to stay with Lumpur Cha, he was a study monk. And he um, he got his Maha degree. And I believe he even started a Pali study institute. And then he, but he decided he wanted to learn meditation and wanted to practice. So he went to go stay with Lumpur Cha. And uh, he was telling me that after two years living there, he got really discouraged and went to see Lumpur Cha and was, you know, uh, talking about his problems and saying, you know, I've been here for two years and I'm not enlightened yet. And Lumpur Cha said to him, it took the Buddha six years to become enlightened. Do you think you're better than the Buddha? <laughs> and and, uh, and so, so that, that got him thinking and he, he stayed and continued practicing. But, um, but yeah, so when, um, when practicing, we just have to realize that, you know, um, it's uh, practicing and meditation it's it's a marathon it's not a sprint so we've got to um, be able to pace ourselves and do it in a sustainable way and just keep giving ourselves encouragement because a lot of times um, there is improvement going on and we are developing but it, it's um, it's gradual so we don't see the differences but uh, a lot of times people around us can see the differences so it's one of the things um, at the monastery I ordained at at Wat Panana Chat um, it's, you know, it's mostly Western, it's for Westerners. And so they've come to Thailand and ordained. And a lot of times, you know, their parents aren't Buddhist, their families aren't Buddhist. So um, they're not, they're not always that supportive. But what happens is, you know, over time, when they come and visit, because, you know, being in a different country, they don't visit so often. So they're able to see the changes and how their sons have developed and grown. And, and then it usually changes their opinion about it, and uh, be, and they become quite supportive. Because in the beginning, a lot of the parents aren't aren't supportive. You know, you have a lot who are trying to talk their their sons into disrobing or going home. <clears throat> I I have the the opposite. My parents are Buddhist, so um, they always told me that I'm never allowed to disrobe, and uh, <laughs> they're uh, they're very proud to have a son which is a monk. Their, their plan is always to get their grandkids from my brother. So, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so we have to, we have to keep uh, encouraging ourselves and finding, finding new skillful ways to keep ourselves encouraged. When I was a novice, uh, Lumpur Pasno came to visit Wat Nanachat and uh, Lumpur Pasno and I come from the same, the same place. And as a, a kid, I, uh, uh, when I was very small, my family went to church I actually went to church with his uncles. My mom knows his uncles. Um, and, uh, and so there's a bit of a connection there. So I went in and was talking to him. And um, I was telling Lumpur Pasno that uh, I was, you know, I was having difficulties being inspired. And I just wasn't feeling very inspired at that time. 
And Lumpur Pasno said to me, he said, inspiration is a skill. And at least for me, this was really like groundbreaking because I'd always just expected I just should be inspired all the time or it was kind of the responsibility of everything around me to inspire me. Like the place should be inspiring me. The other monks should be inspiring me. The adjuncts should be giving talks to keep me inspired. But it's actually, it's actually inspiration is a skill. So we've got to learn over time how to, how to inspire ourselves and how to give rise to energy for ourselves. And so, you know, we can, we can find different methods and skills to do this. Um, we can try, um, you know, reading biographies of other monks, reading the suttas, reading the teachings. We can try um, just reflecting on stuff like reflecting on old age and death. And and so again, over over the years, we're going to find um, these skillful means, and we have to we have to keep working on them, and we have to keep developing them, and we have to develop a a few like a whole set of them. Because, you know, what works for us one day dealing with the difficulties isn't going to work for us the next day. Um, so we've got we've to have a, have a few of them to work with for in our practice. So um, uh, I think that's maybe all for the talk this morning. If there's any questions. John, thank you very much for sharing your uh, experiences in trying to meditate well. Um, yeah, I think all of us struggle with meditation. Uh, it's, it's a very good topic um, uh, that you are talking about. So um, I always struggle with um, the mind not being able to focus. Like, you know, it's always wandering around when you're trying to focus on the breath. Yeah. Yeah. So the I think the mind is very noisy. So I was wondering, can you share some um, advice or tips on how to focus the mind on the breath? Um, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No problem. Um, so uh, a lot of times with uh, uh, say say uh, with meditation and the mind wandering is so for example like uh, using the meditation object of the breath. Um, there's different ways to look at, to, to, uh, you do breath meditation and you've got, um, you got different ways to, to watch the breath. So in the Thai force tradition, a lot of times they just teach, uh, uh, repeating the, the mantra Buddha. So Buddha on the in breath and do on the out breath. But for a lot of people, this is, this is a too refined of an object to begin with. Like, so, um, a lot of times you already have to be kind of peaceful to, be able to, to use this because it's very easy to lose. So we want to start with something, um, you know, a little more coarse, like generally in, um, in Dhamma, you always want to go from the more coarse to the more refined. So, you know, the, uh, uh, the simile they always give is like uh, taking a rough piece of wood and trying to s sand it smooth. So you want to start with the rougher sandpaper first and then move to the, the more refined sandpaper. Um, so one of the things you can try is with the breath meditation is try using um, a different way to watch it. So you can try something like counting the breaths, like one on the in-breath, one on the out-breath, two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. Then you go up to five, back down to one, and then you do it again up to six, and then back down to one, and then up to seven, and you do all that up to ten, and then you do it again back down to five. So, so using something of a more... Uh, uh, object which is going to use more if the mind's already active to use more of that active part of the mind to calm it down. Um, uh, another another method people will use is try taking a really really deep breath. So just really in breath as deep as you can, fill up your lungs, and then hold it as long as you can, and then let it all out as much as you can. Uh, let it all right out, and then do that a few times, say three times, 
and a lot of times this can help calm down the mind. Um, another way you can do it is uh, uh, focusing on the end of the breath. So when on the out breath, just focusing on when the breath ends and then breathe back in and breathe, breathe out and then just really trying to make that the end of the breath the place to focus on. But, um, but also um, one, of the good, uh, one of the better ways is also just to use a meditation object that uses the thinking mind. So um, instead of just using the breath, if your mind's really thinking and active a lot, um, try using uh, one of the meditation objects that uses that active mind. So you can do something like um, uh, loving kindness meditation, metta meditation, where you are thinking, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be well, or, and then to other people. Um, or you could use something like, more like body contemplation, or, uh, or you could do, um, uh, yeah, reflection on death, any of these ones that really use the thinking mind. Or, or another one some people do is um, do something which uses the body a little more. So either try some walking meditation, or there is a, a method, uh, uh, Ajahn Kevali, the abbot of Wat, Wat, Wat Panana Chat once taught us, is to sit with your hands on your knees like this, and then um, uh, uh, count with your fingers the breaths. So one in-breath, one out-breath, you count with one finger. And then the next one, you move to the next finger, and you just keep moving along with the different fingers. And it just, it gives something a little more your mind is doing, a little more tactile, and um, to, to help absorb that restlessness in the mind. And so, okay, okay, no problem. Thank you very much for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, my question is sort of around the topic of aversion and delusion. Yeah. Um, and I'll try sort of explain it. So I've come across this idea that sometimes um, we have aversion and delusion to some of our emotional feelings. Yeah. So, for example, basically, I'm just wondering um, if you can share some thoughts and ideas around um, this particular scenario. So, for example, sometimes I've heard this idea that when we meditate, sometimes we can uh, be so good at meditation that we sometimes get disconnected from our emotional body. And sometimes, for example, we might be in delusion and aversion to how we're truly feeling and not really truly surrendering or accepting, for example, um, our states of feelings and emotions. So I guess maybe to help explain, for example, let's say, for example, um, I have an aversion or discomfort, for example, to a particular feeling. Let, let's say a person's been triggered and they're feeling anger and emo like anger or sadness or something like that, or any of the feelings which are hindrances. And let's say that person, what they do is they go down and they say, okay, I acknowledge that I'm having these feelings and what I want to do is I want to sort of let them go and they go and they sit down and they meditate and then they meditate and they sort of, they feel like they've letting go, but deep down they haven't really letting go. What they've done is they've really distanced themselves from their emotional body. Um, so I'm not sure if, if, if I'm sort of being clear, but like how can we be true to ourselves and not be in delusion that we've sort of let go of something when we haven't really? Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but can you share some thoughts that whatever comes up for you in regards to that kind of like, how can we be truthful with ourselves and not be, in aversion to how we are really feeling and at the same time really reach that point of like letting go and really overcoming like some of our feelings and not just sort of like ignoring them or sort of like feeling like we've conquered them but we haven't really i'm not sure but whatever comes up for you i'd really appreciate it okay i'm not quite sure i understood but i, I I'll, I'll try <laughs> well um so the first part about the um having aversion towards our own uh, feelings and emotions. Um, th this does come up a, a lot. Like, you know, we'll have this, uh, you know, we, we have these very high ideals as Buddhists and as meditators of what we should and shouldn't be thinking and should and shouldn't be feeling. You know, we think we should just be, you know, compassionate and, and natural renunciates and not be greedy, not have any of these coming up. And then they do come up. You know, throughout the day, we, you know, we really feel that, oh, I've, 
become this really loving, kind person. And then, you know, we get really irritated at someone or we get angry at some, something someone did. And then we catch that and we, and then we get angry at ourselves for doing this. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, why am I like this? Why am I still like this? I'm not supposed to be like this, you know, I'm, and then, and, but all that is, is creating more aversion, right? So like, you know, it's not, you know, anger is not overcome by anger, but by loving kindness. And so we don't, we don't want to just create more aversion um, in that way. And we, we do uh, just have to accept, okay, this is what's coming up. You know, the important part is accepting it and then we can take care of it. Like, um, I remember uh, Lumpur Jamnian was once saying once, he broke down these certain um, principles of practice he always had. And one of them was just first to accept everything and then to take care of it. So when we do have these emotions come up, um, and these defilements and come up, we, we have to accept that that's the way they are. And then we start working on them. And, um, um, and the other part about say with letting go is I think sometimes we, um, kind of oversimplify and kind of romanticize the idea of letting go, the idea of forgiveness and stuff like that. Like we believe it's just like letting go isn't an act of will. It's something which takes a lot of time and we have to put the causes and conditions for letting go. And um, and same, say, for example, like something like forgiveness from my own observations of it is um, uh, like a lot of times, you know, there's that almost like the Hollywood style of forgiveness where it's this moment and it's like, okay, and then now I forgive you. Or I, I, I forgave him and that moment and then that was the end of it. And I, and, um, from what I, I've seen in, in myself, it's more of a process. So it's, it's not just, you know, if someone did something to us and hurt us in some way and, you know, we get angry at them and have a grudge against them, um, forgiving them takes a process and it goes over time and you feel you're improving, you feel you're getting better, you're okay around them and stuff. And then something happens and all of a sudden you get angry at them again about what they did, you know? And so, so it, it's, it's an ongoing process over time. And so we've got to, uh, yeah, just kind of work with that, have our patience with that. And, um, yeah, and just, just give ourselves that, that, uh, acceptance and patience to, to do it. Did, did I, was that kind of what you were going for? Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. So we do have a couple of questions from the online audience, if that's okay. all right. Um, so the first one is, Ajahn, I have more trouble thinking too much than falling asleep. Your thoughts? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, um, yeah, generally, if, if you think a lot, you won't be tired and sleepy. Like, it's, it's one of the things Lung Par Cha would say that during the morning, chant, uh, the morning meditation, the monks who are sitting the straightest were the ones who were thinking the most. So, so, um, so again, yeah, a lot of times when, like, uh, for sleepiness, when we do start uh, developing calm in our meditation, that's when uh, sleepiness becomes more of a, more of an obstacle and more of a hindrance. But, um, uh, I already gave a, f a few methods for how to deal with, with that thinking. But w one of the other things you can do is, um, is work on, to, to reduce the thinking is to work on developing more mindfulness throughout the day. Because one of the, the things that people misunderstand is um, our meditation, uh, like our meditation session doesn't actually start when we sit down. It started hours beforehand. And so um, it's kind of like, again, like kind of like an athlete, you know, um, they're, if they're really trying to um, go far and like high performance athlete and go far in their sport, um, it's not just, it's not just the time they're training in the gym, which is, uh, important. It's their entire life. So, you know, you can't just be training in the gym and then go out and, he and eat a whole bunch of fast food, you know? And so, so for us, what we want to do is we want to try to keep as much mindfulness going throughout our day. And the more mindfulness we have throughout our day, and the more we can reduce our thinking throughout the day, um, the better our meditation is going to be. And then the better our meditation is going to be, the more mindfulness we're going to have throughout the day. So, um, again, in the in the Thai forest tradition, a lot of the uh, Lumpur Man and his disciples just taught to 
do the repetition of budo all day long. Just keep this mantra, budo, 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 going all day long in there in your mind. And when I was new to uh, the monastery, living at Wat Panana Chat, you know, I read Lung Perman's biography. I'd read these books by Lung Tam Mahabua. So it sounded easy, just do budo all the time. And I'd start doing budo. And then after about 30 seconds, I'd lose it. And then I'd get really hard on myself and be like, oh, I'm a terrible novice. I'm, I'm never going to be any good as a monk. And but, but so my feeling is that doing something like for some people that works, just having that one meditation word or that one mantra all the time. But for a lot of people, especially with more active minds, you've got to find more skillful ways to, to do this. So one of the ways I found um, beneficial to keep uh, your mindfulness going throughout the day is to break the day up into different activities and different periods. And, and so um, almost set up each period of the day and each activity of the day, find a way to stay mindful during that. So for example, uh, in the monastery, you know, we go in Bindabad every morning in Thailand. And, you know, um, usually they're several kilometers long. So what I did was um, decided, okay, I'm just going to count my steps. So to keep mindful, you know, you count your steps. And, and yeah, when, especially once you start to get to the higher numbers, it takes a lot more mental, uh, uh, mental power and attention to, to keep that. And so, um, so yeah, you, you have to find these different little skills uh, throughout the day to set up each period as a, as a meditation. Yeah. And, and also one of the things is doing this for these activities. Um, if you do it every, every day for certain activities, what's going to happen is it's going to become a, a way you can test where your mind is that day. So if, uh, some days you'll find, say for the counting, the steps on Bindabat, some days it's really easy your mind just wants to be there. It wants to be counting the steps. It doesn't want to be thinking about other things. And then other days, it's it's more of a struggle. And you have to kind of keep bringing your mind back and put and trying to really force and keep your mind on that. So you can kind of see where you at, you're at different days and be able to judge where your mind is at. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, are there any questions from the floor? Morning. Would would you mind distinguishing between thinking and mindfulness? Um, please. Well, mindfulness is um, a lot of times when we talk about mindfulness, um, what we're really talking about is uh, sati sampajanya, like mindfulness and clear comprehension. A lot of times, just the way we talk about them includes the boat, uh, the two terms. So thinking is. Um, uh, like mindful is mindfulness would be like bringing your awareness and your like uh, presence of mind to a particular uh, activity, and usually uh, a lot of times when we have mindfulness, it'll be more the mind will be more quiet. So like um, mindfulness of walking would be like just being aware of the walking, you know. And so you could have the awareness on the feet or on the body, or mindfulness of breathing is just having having your awareness on the breath and and just watching the breath going in and out, whereas thinking is um, just that mental proliferation, like that internal dialogue going on and on. But, um, but again, we can use that thinking ability to help develop certain meditation objects, so more like the reflective ones. If you're counting the steps, though, yeah. isn't that thinking? Um, well, you're using, you're using, uh, like there is a certain level of, uh, internal dialogue, like the same as if you're using budo, there's the mind is going budo, budo, but your, uh, your awareness is more on the feet and you're not going off into thinking because your mind is staying on this one, one, um, object. So it's not like it's just the counting. So it's just one, two, three, four. So your mind's not going off into you know, what am I going to do today? Okay. Where did I go yesterday? Okay. You know, did, did, what am I going to have for lunch? You know, yeah. okay. and so, so it, it kind of keeps the, the mind under control and into kind of a certain area, you know. All right, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Arjun. I'll just go to the next online question. Um, would eyes open meditation in a public space work without distraction? Um. It would probably be if 
it could be a little more difficult just because um, you're having things move in front of you. So one of, one of the um, reasons when we sit and we close our eyes is we're shutting down a lot of as many of our sense doors as we can so that there's less things drawing out the mind, less distractions drawing out the mind. But um, uh, yeah, so it could be more distracting. You know, you'd see in um, some of the Mahayana traditions, they do eyes open meditation. So uh, I think Zen monks will sit facing the wall. So nothing, nothing moves in front of them, nothing distracts them. But, um, but again, I mean, it takes, uh, it, it just will take more practice. You know, when we're doing walking meditation, you know, our eyes are open and, and we're still able to develop, develop that calm. But yeah, it, it can be more distracting. Yeah. You're trying to meditate and then you, you know, see a dog run by or something and you're like, oh, look at that. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, are there any more questions from the floor? I might just go to the next online question then. Um, I have trouble with my feet developing pins and needles, which become a distraction. I've tried with, with and without a cushion, but nothing helps. Any suggestions, please, Ajahn? Um... Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, again, just just you can just work on just having mindfulness of that. Just just watch that if this is um, what's happening, and just watch that. And um, uh, I remember when I first started meditating um, when I was a layman at Ajahn Sona's monastery in Canada. I remember having that my feet falling asleep when I meditate, and I was really worried that the blood flow had been cut off and that I was going to like, my feet were going to like turn gangrene or something, you know? And so, so I, you know, pressing on them, checking to make sure the blood was still there. And then once I uh, figured out the blood was okay and talked to Ajahn Sona about it um, and realized it's just, just the legs going to sleep, then um, it was okay. You know, so, so I think um, a, a lot of, if this person, if they're not, if their feet aren't getting, they're not doing something which is hurting their legs or their feet, um, they can either just watch it or just again focus back on on their meditation object because yeah. again like um, most people especially once they start getting older and stuff um, there's always going to be there's always going to be something there's always going to be some pains and stuff in the body there's always going to be some distractions around like we um, we always want to have we always have this tendency that we want the best circumstances around we want to have um, like the perfect circumstances for practice, but um, that's never, that just doesn't happen. Um, one of the things uh, Lumpur Biak used to talk about was his monastery is in the city. When they first offered the land for the monastery, it was about 20 kilometers from Bangkok, and it was just all you could see was fields around it. But then, um, and it was just a small piece of land, but then Bangkok grew really quick, and now the the monastery is about maybe 10 minutes from the old airport, the Don, Mu Don Muang airport. And and it, the monastery used to be right under the landing path for the planes. So it's a loud monastery. Um, there's busyness. You're in the city. It's very small. And so you have a lot of things which, like distractions. You have a lot of noise. You have a lot of all kinds of things going on. Um, and Lumpur Biak talks about it. You know, this isn't the most ideal place uh uh, environment for practice like that, but he says there's two types of samadhi. He says there's samadhi with a roam and samadhi without a roam. So this is like samadhi with um, like aramana, with like some kind of sense impingement, and samadhi without sense impingement. So he says the samadhi without aramana, he says that's going in when you go into the forest and you go into somewhere really quiet and really peaceful to practice meditation. And he says um, usually the mind becomes quiet very quickly and uh, samadhi develops very quickly. But the problem about this is when you come out of that situation, uh, the samadhi is uh, more fragile, and so it can fall apart very easily. So for example, you go stay in the forest, you know, you don't see anyone else, you know, it's just beautiful and peaceful and stuff, your mind gets peaceful, and then, you know, you have to travel, and you go into the city, and you go to the airport and stuff, and you just become overwhelmed by everything, and your samadhi just falls apart. 
So the second uh, type of samadhi, he said, there's samadhi with a roam. So this is where you develop your meditation in environments where there is a lot of stuff going on. There are noise, there are sense impingements. And he says, it's much more difficult to develop this type of samadhi. But he said, if, like, if you're able to, he said, it's a very, very firm type of samadhi. And, um, and it doesn't fall apart very easily. So, yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, I'll just go to the next one. Uh, I often fall asleep when doing Nesuk Chik. I wonder if I failed and I should give up Nesuk Chik. I try to change positions, but it's still happening. Please suggest what I should do to improve. Um, well, uh, if, if, for people who don't know, Nesajit, um, is the Thai word for Nesajita, which, uh, is one of the Dutanga or one of the austere practices. And, um, the, uh, the actual practice in, from the, um, from the text is the practice of not lying down. So this would be the, taking the, uh, a period of time and just not lying down for that. But you're able, you're allowed to sleep sitting up. But the the understanding we have in Thailand of it in the forest tradition is to practice through the night without sleeping. So it's to go through a period without sleeping. So um, when I stayed with Lumpur Biak, this was his favorite practice to get the monks to do. Um, depending on the month, because uh, we'd have to do it every one pra, and then three. Uh, weekends a, a month, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday in a row. So s some days you'd have to go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and if the one pra was on Monday, you'd have to go f four four days in a row without sleeping at night. Yeah, post a day. And um, then, um, so it usually totals about 12, 13 days a month. You'd have to um, stay up all night. And uh, Lumpur Biak talk talked a lot about this and a lot about the benefits of it. So he was saying that, you know, to, we do this practice um, because it's difficult. Like uh, one time he was asking me, he said, you know, which is more difficult, uh, fasting or nesajit? I said, oh, well, nesajit is way more difficult than fasting. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And he's like, fasting wasn't one of the Dutanga practices either. So, but what, what happens throughout the course of nesajiting is um, all, all of our hindrances are going to come up. Um, we're going to get... You know, we're going to get uh, irritable. We're going to have aversion come up. We're going to have um, uh, desire come up. We're going to have uh, sloth and torpor come up. We're going to have um, uh, a restlessness come up. We're going to have doubts come up. So we do this because it forces us to deal with these and learn how to overcome these. And then um, it forces us to also what we have is uh, this really strong vedana, this strong feeling coming up of sleepiness and at some points during the night you're just gonna um all you want to do is go to sleep there's nothing more important than going to sleep at this time you know you, you don't care if you have to sleep in and miss the meal the next day like um and we only have one meal a day there so it's all you want to do is is go to sleep but you learn to overcome this and you learn skillful ways to overcome this and um like lumpur biak would always say come wait come uh niwan and so but what happens is once you can learn to overcome the hindrances and overcome uh, feelings, you can develop samadhi because samadhi is the absence of hindrances. So you want uh, or come, can come about once you uh, remove these hindrances or learn to overcome them. But um, but so, yeah, it's, it's not easy. And it's one which takes a lot of time uh, to develop. And um, yeah, if, if you want to do it, it just it, it takes a lot of time and, and dedication and um but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the practice for everybody so um yeah thank you ajan um are there any questions from the floor thank you very much ajan <coughs> excuse me <coughs> um i saw a, a talk recently by a neuro um person uh, talking about the brain and one way to help people stay awake when they're feeling tired during the day he said is, is to actually just look up and really focus on sort of 
and I put energy and lifting your body up and just literally just lifting the uh, plane of your eyes because it's when we fall asleep, everything starts going down. And I've tried that a little bit with, with a bit of success in meditation, just sort of consciously just actually lift my eyes. Is that something that's taught or talked about in um, meditation practice at all as a means of fighting torpor? One, one of the, uh, the ways the Buddha taught, he, he gave several... several um, I believe it was to Mahamogalana, several ways to overcome um, sleepiness when meditation, when meditating, sorry, was um, was to look up at the stars. That was one of, one of the methods he taught was to look up at the stars. Yeah. But um, it's not one I, I've heard taught a lot, but that that's the only reference I've heard to it. The, the closest was um, how Lumpur Biak says to sit up straight and open the eyes and look up at a light. Yeah, but... <laughs> um, I'll just go to the next online question. Okay. Um, could you please elaborate on ways to look within to keep being inspired? I have this exact same problem in feeling flat with meditation. Thanks. Um, so um, uh, some, some of them uh, start off with, say, just reading the teachings of the Buddha reading um, biographies about other uh, people who have practiced. Sometimes, um, I remember Lumpur Pasna was saying, sometimes it's more inspiring reading the Vinaya, because um, when you read the suttas, these are all the stories of the monks who got it, and they understood, and it was easy. When you hear the read the Vinaya, this is all the naughty monks. This is the monks who didn't get it. So you can see it's, well, I'm, I'm not really that bad, you know, and other people struggled too. But one of the things we can also do is um, a lot of reflection and a lot of using our contemplation on this. So just really look at um, uh, how do I feel when I'm practicing versus how do I feel when I'm not practicing. So a lot of times, um, uh, yeah, actually, when I am meditating, I am putting in effort. I actually feel good. You know, I feel better. Life feels better. But when I'm not doing it, you know, things things feel rough. Things aren't as nice as they were. Um, you can, you know, contemplate on stuff like death. You can be like, okay, um, my life is only a certain length of time. Eventually I will die. Um, how do I want to be using my time? How do I want to be spending my time? Um, yeah, just uh, finding little little methods like that to to keep yourself inspired and to keep yourself into it. And sometimes also uh, just doing something like changing up your meditation object. So, you know, if you're um, just doing the breath, just doing the breath, just doing the breath, you know, over time it can feel kind of getting, like it's getting a little dull, you know. So um, one of the things you can do is do more like loving kindness meditation and and uh, and try to, try to vary it up a bit. Um, but one of the things that can also happen when you're meditating is, you know, you might be watching the breath and you can feel that your mind is staying with the breath, but it, you're not getting any like pity coming up. You're not getting any rapture or happiness come up. So Lumpur Biak teaches when that happens to actually actively try to bring up a feeling of pity. So, you know, you're watching the breath and um, then he, he would say, uh, start doing some body contemplation and bring up some pity. I, I find uh, doing metta is very good for that. You feel you're you're watching the breath and you're just not getting that rapture out of it. Yeah. I have a question, Bhante. Yeah. Uh, like uh, the the question is related to samadhi with uh, sensual impeachments. Yeah. So if someone is killed in uh, that kind of samadhi, uh, he can potentially bring that samadhi whenever he wish. So my question is. Is that person always maintains the samadhi, or uh, whenever he wish, he will he'll bring that samadhi? So, so you mean like, does he have that samadhi going continuously all the time throughout the day? Yeah. Or, um, well, again, again, it would have to uh, samadhi. Like, there has to be um, a certain amount of effort put into to going into samadhi, right? So, it's, uh, for for most people who are like unenlightened and stuff, it's not uh, just once you've got it; it's always there. You have to keep keep maintaining it and working on it, and um, 
So it's, it's kind of a lot of times there's this misunderstanding when we start talking about uh, the ways we talk about samadhi. So we'll say, for example, this monk has, or this person has this level of samadhi. So say this, we believe this person, this person has upajara samadhi, right? So this, we have this misunderstanding when we say that, that that means every single time that person meditates, their mind goes into upajara samadhi, or that they will now always have this level of meditation. And the other is that, um, that when they meditate, their mind will always be at that level. So we'll think, okay, when they sit to meditate, boom, it'll just go into upajara samadhi and be smooth sailing through like that. But what, what happens is it's not every time their mind will get into these states and not and their mind won't be, it's not just a steady thing throughout the sit. A lot of times there's ups and downs, ups and downs, where part of, during the sit it gets deeper and then not as deep. So, yeah. Thank you, Bhante. <laughs> so I think if there's no more questions, we might just have time for one last question. Um, namaste. How could forest monks deal with sickness, especially mal malaria in Thailand. Were they getting hospitalized? What sort of methods did they use to deal with chills? Um, yeah, um, nowadays, yeah, it, uh, if you get malaria, we, we, we go to the doctor and we'll get, get the medicine for it. Um, back in the old days, I, I'm not quite sure how they, they all dealt with it. You know, sometimes, I think sometimes they had medicine, sometimes they didn't, sometimes they had more like herbal medicines to deal with it. But, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how they would do it back in the old days. But nowadays, whenever one of our monks gets malaria, um, take them right to the hospital. Though um, malaria is not so common anymore in Thailand. Um, the one that we, the, the Western monks in Thailand seem to get the most is scrub typhus. But, um, but again, when that happens, it's it's take them take them to the hospital. Yeah, get get the proper medi medicine. Because again, in in our reflections, like when we reflect on the use of the requisites, when we reflect on the use of the medicinal requisite, it's um you know for uh, our long lasting freedom from disease. So I mean, when illness and stuff comes up, you can learn a lot from it and learn a lot about yourself. But again, it it a lot of times it does um, have a can be detrimental to the practice and you know you don't you don't want to have malaria when you don't have to <laughs> yeah. okay i think that's it for today then <laughs> okay That there's a day meditation on Saturday. I think it's the first Saturday. Yeah, first Saturday. Yeah. Maybe Ajahn may make an announcement. Okay. So I'd like to thank Ajahn Nando for coming. It was very nice to. I've I've talked to him informally over many many years. We've known each other for many years, and we just talk informally and chit chat. I've never heard him give a talk. So <laughs> this is the first time I've ever heard him give a Dharma talk. So it was a very very good talk. Uh, very lucky to have him here. Um, so yeah, thank you to Ajahn Nando and you can all come and pay respects to him after if you like. Um, if you do have any further questions later, we can go over and have the communal meal. And after we have something to eat, you can come and ask some more questions of him and, and pester him a little bit more. So that's quite nice. So next week, next week at the BSV, here at the BSV, we have the Firstly, we have the Friday night sessions. It's a new program we're running, and these sessions are uh, aimed more towards people that are brand new to Buddhism and looking to get a start, brand new to meditation. And so we're trying to offer a program where people can you know, really get a good basis in these kinds of practices and ask any of the kind of very simple questions that you might actually have. So you're all welcome to come on a Friday night. Then on the Saturday, we will be having a one-day retreat here with Ajahn Mudito, I believe. He will be leading the one-day retreat. So you're welcome to come along and do a, do a one-day retreat. It's nice where you can 
put aside a whole day to actually do some meditation and you have a good place to do it. So I encourage you all to do that as well. And then again, Sunday next week, there's a, there's a talking. Sorry, yes, yeah, 8.30 to 4.30 as well. And if, you, if, you're, if you're enamored with Ajahn Nando's talks and you think, wow, he's such a great monk and I really want to continue to listen to Ajahn Nando, he's so inspiring, he will be doing the, the Monday night meditation tomorrow night as well so you can come and listen to him and he can give you even more uh, inspiration and, <laughs> and instructions. <laughs> so with that, we'll, we'll call it a day and we'll pay respects to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Just, just one more addition. Uh, one more, one more. Uh, for a Saturday, I believe that uh, to maintain silence, so there won't be any shared lunch done on Saturday. So if you can bring your own lunch, um, and the, the monastic will be taken care of by 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 the dana, by the diacas. Um, so that just to just to reduce any rush, washing and uh, and, and noise uh, during the lunch time. Thanks. Uh, please join us for lunch next door. Uh, I think Sunday the Dhamma talk will be given by Ajahn Bodhidharma. Uh, also, by the way, tomorrow night, uh, Monday night meditation will be led by Ajahn Nando. So you have a chance to practice what he has preached so far, and you can ask him some of your questions too as well tomorrow night. Thank you. <laughs>